Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Life is so unpredictable. One day it seems as if everything is going your way. And the next it feels as if you were hit by a, a mad truck. As if nothing is going your way. And everything is wrong. That could possibly be wrong. The Bible illustrates this for us over and over again. One day, Job is on top of the world. The next, everything that is precious to him is being taken away, even his children. One day, Joseph is the apple of his father, Jacob's eyes. Even wearing a, a, a precious coat, a special coat, made just for him. The next morning, he wakes up a slave. But the ultimate change of circumstances came when Jesus entered Jerusalem and the people were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Then just a few days later, most of the same people are shouting, Crucify him. But we don't have to wait until the end of Jesus' life to see such sudden shifts in circumstances. The last time we visited Matthew's Gospel, we covered Jesus' baptism in the River Jordan. What a great day that was, as John the Baptist called all men to come to the waters and to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And many people came out and were baptized that day. But the one that is most important on that day was Jesus, the anointed, the Messiah, the Son of God. He came and he was baptized. And we read that after he came up out of the water, John was privileged to see the Spirit of God descend upon him. And then he heard the voice from heaven, from God the Father, say, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. So what happens there, and I just want to quick side note, is we have three of John's five senses attributed to the truth of the Trinity. With his ears, he heard the Father say, this is my beloved son. With his, with his, with his eyes, he saw the Holy Spirit descend upon that son. And with his hands, he brought him up out of the water. He touched him. And I just wanted to make that little side note for anyone who may be uh, dealing with someone who is a oneness Pentecostal, uh, which comes from an Old Testament, an old historic uh, heresy uh, called Sibelianism, a.k.a. modernism. So it's nothing new. That's just something that you can share with someone who is believing that Jesus shifts into the Father when he be, and then shifts into the Holy Spirit. If you know anyone like that, the baptism of Jesus is the best place to disprove that heresy. Just wanted to share that with you. But what a joyous occasion Jesus' baptism was. Then comes the turn. The temptation in the wilderness. And this temptation in the wilderness encapsulates the fact that there are three things that take place throughout the life of most believers. Number one, God tests us for his good purposes. Number two, Satan tempts us for his evil purposes. And number three, we put God to the test for our fleshly purposes. I titled this sermon, Temptation Defeated. So please follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Once again, there the Holy Word of God says, 
Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let us pray. Father, as we attempt to delve into your word with accuracy, I pray that you would guide me by your spirit, Lord that your spirit would fill this place, that our ears would, 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 would be specially attentive to hear the truths that come out of your word. And anything that I am um, inaccurate on, I pray it would be forgotten, Lord God. But please help me to speak clearly that, I, that, that Jesus would be magnified this morning, that those who don't know you would run to you, Lord God, seeing their need for the good news of Jesus Christ to make an impact in their lives. Please help me with this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. According to James chapter 1 and verse 13, God tempts no man to do evil. So, when we read that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, it makes it more understandable to us when we recognize that the word uh, tempt here, the original word is uh, pyrazo, and it could also mean to test, to test one. And many times in scripture, testing is used by God to reveal or develop character. Like when God tested Abraham concerning Isaac when he told him to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah before he provided a substitute. Or when God tested the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, Exodus 20, 20 uh, with thunder, lightning, the sound of a trumpet, and the smoky mountain. And then he gives us the reason why God, why he tested them. It says that the fear of him may be before them that they may not sin. King David welcomed God's test. He said, prove me, O Lord. And this takes a lot of faith. This is, I don't know about the service. King David is saying, God, prove me. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test me. Test my heart and my mind. In Psalm 26, verse 2. His son, King Solomon stated God's testing as a matter of fact. When he said, the crucible is for silver, check, true. The furnace is for gold, check, that's true. The Lord tests hearts, check, that's also true. Proverbs 17, verse 3. And although God tempts no one to do evil, here, as in the book of Job, God used Satan to serve his sovereign purposes. The Bible tells us that within Christ's 30 plus years upon this earth, he was tempted in all points, according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. And at this point in the wilderness, Satan tempted him with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The system of evil that dominates the world. Scripturally, both Matthew and Mark's pericope place Jesus' temptation 
right after his baptism. But Luke, on the other hand, what he does is he inserts the genealogy from Adam to Jesus in between the two, showing, I believe, the contrast between the first Adam, who fell, and the last Adam, which is what 1 Corinthians 15.45 calls Jesus, who was victorious. Now, a pericope, real quickly, is a set of verses that go along with another set of verses to bring forth a complete unit or a, a complete thought. So when we combine Matthew, Mark, and Luke's version of the temptation of the Christ, we get one coherent thought, one unit, one coherent unit of what took place. We observe that Satan's temptation took place within the 40 days, most likely increasing in intensity towards the end. We're also informed that Jesus was in the midst of wild animals, they call them wild beasts, and also that the angels ministered to him throughout the 40 days, and not just at the end. Now, as you scholars are aware, in certain places, the Bible will give us these parallels. For instance, in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Then when we read Matthew chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, Joseph took the baby Jesus and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Out of Egypt, I called my son, quoting that very same Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, so that Jesus is being parallel to historic Israel. In our text today, in verse 2, we see it again. It says, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Jesus' 40 days and nights in the wilderness paralleled Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Both Israel's testing and Jesus' testing came at pivotal moments. One quote-unquote son was after being redeemed from Egypt. The other, capital S, son, after being anointed at his baptism. The one son failed. The one son Israel failed in the wilderness, but their failure was to point them and us to the eternal son, Jesus, the Christ, who would never fail in the wilderness and beyond. So by gaining the victory over his temptation, Jesus was legitimized as God's true son, the one whom all are commanded to hear, the one that Moses told Israel about when he said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Deuteronomy 18, 15. And so it begins. In verse 3, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, Command these stones to be turned into bread. The word if here carries the, the, the meaning of since. There was no doubt in Satan's mind that he knew exactly who Jesus was because his minions knew who Jesus was. You remember when Jesus would go to heal someone who was, who, who was filled with demons, what would they say? We know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. But Satan's scheme was to get Jesus to violate the plan of God by getting him to use his divine power at his bidding. But the Lord set this aside, his humiliation. So in total submission to the law, Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of of God. The first three answers, or this is the first, I should say, of three answers that Jesus gives. They all come out of the book of Deuteronomy. This one here, this answer is from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, which entails Moses reminding the children of Israel of their journey through the wilderness. I'm going to read uh, chapter 8, uh, verse 3, but I'm not just going to read verse 3, I'm going to read the verse before it. 
so that we can get a better glimpse of how God works in his people through testing and trials for his good and his glory. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 2 and 3 says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger. Wow. He humbled you and let you hunger. You mean God lets his people have bad days? Yes. Why would he do such a thing? Let's read it again. Verse 3, straight through. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God allowed Israel to hunger so he might feed them with manna and teach them to trust him, to provide for them. But Israel failed to trust God over and over again. Very similar to Adam's failure, except Adam was in the best of circumstances in the Garden of Eden. He had an abundant abundance of food, no lack whatsoever. But when the tempter came to him, he failed miserably. Then on the other side of the spectrum, here's Jesus, with no food, and his body in a weakened state. What does he do? He leans heavily upon the word of God and prevails. First test, then the provision for God's glory. First test, then the provision for God's glory. In the wilderness, yes, they lacked food, but it wasn't all they lacked. And it wasn't all that they needed. They lacked spiritual food. That's what they really needed. They needed to believe every word that came from the mouth of God. Satan knows man. He's not all-knowing, but he's been watching people for a long time. And he knows enough to recognize a person's desires and weak points. And after Jesus go, go many days, after watching Jesus go many days without any food, what does he tempt him with? Food. And here's a question for you today. After watching you for so long and knowing what you dip into and how you will compromise, what does the wicked one tempt you with? And here's a more important question. Has he been winning? Has he been winning? So what's the, what's the solution? We can't live on physical bread alone. We have to feast on the word of God because the word of God is living and active. It's not dead words on a page. It's life. It gets inside of you and it begins to work. It takes drunks and makes them sober. It takes thieves and makes them hard workers who now love to give generously. It takes those in bondage to sexual immorality and sets them free to love Jesus, not just with their uh, lips, but with their lives. We've read that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, but what does that mean? It means that while the word of God is both uh, comforting and nourishing, to those who believe, it is also a tool of judgment and execution for those who have not committed themselves to Jesus. Some church members really go through the motions of belonging to Christ. Intellectually, they're partly persuaded, but inside they are not committed to God's word exposes their shallow beliefs and false intentions because it's piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and matter, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. For those who are committed to Christ, the Word of God acts as a sculpt, and we are the play. I like the way Jake Adams, who went to be with the Lord yesterday at the age of 91, explains it when he tells of a woman who came to him for counseling. She said, Pastor, 
I still can't seem to get these ugly thoughts out of my head. Thoughts of negativity and immorality. And it, it affects what I do and what I say. And I do read the Bible. And J. Adam said, yes, you read the Bible, but do you study the Word to show yourself approved? 2 Timothy 2.15. That, that takes, it takes being a worker in the Word, right? Learn to handle the Word correctly, soaking it in. It brings conviction uh, when, when doubts, fears, anxiety, and outright sin wants to invade our hearts and our minds. For instance, personally, I'm getting a little older. I know both of you can't tell. You can't tell. But I am getting a little older, and I, I want to make sure that I'm saving rightly for the future. Right? But when I begin to look at my finances a little too often and a little too closely, the Word of God reminds me to trust in the Lord all by heart. And not to lean on my own understanding. To acknowledge him in all my ways that he will direct my paths. The word of God, it, it, it convinced me and said, be anxious for nothing. Right? Stop looking so much. Don't be so anxious. But, but by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving for what you have right now, because you deserve nothing good, but be thankful for what you have. Peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Meaning, yes, there are layoffs. Yes, there's sickness. Yes, there's death. But the peace of God, it has a way of going beyond the normal thinking that, oh man, what's going to happen tomorrow? It has a way of saying, trust me. Trust me. Trust me. Think back. You should have been here right now. But you got here. How? I did. Trust me. The word God even convicts me. Right now, reading Hebrews 13. And you read the verses 5 and 6. It says, keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So I can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. Why should I? That's what it means when you say the word is living and active. It's, it's, it's a powerful word. It's not, once again, dead words on the page. No other book in history can do that. That's what the word of God does. And God has given that for us, for us to grow, for us to learn who he is, to love him, to send his son to die on the cross for hope, for sinners, not for good people. For sinners recognizing that I can't do it, God. My sins are always before me. But you, you have taken them all, put them towards your son, and took out the wrath and punishment I deserve, and you placed it on him. But now that burden has been lifted from me. And I want to serve you, Lord, with everything I have now. Not to earn salvation, but because you've given me salvation. And that is an awesome thing that God has blessed us with his word to know these things. To know these things. And in our text here today, we see Jesus telling Satan, man is not to, to, to live by filling up on his desires. Not to get his, 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 his hope built up on things that are going to perish. Putting all of our energies and time into these things. But you need the word of God. Constantly feeding on the word of God. So now, the wicked one begins to think to himself, well, that didn't work. Let me try it from another angle. Verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, the pinnacle of the temple that's most likely being referred to was at the southeast corner of uh, the temple complex, where there was a roof structure overlooking a walkway that was supported by columns. It was at a fixed level well above the temple mountain, 
you can see into the uh, uh, Kidron Valley deep from that point. And according to uh, Antiquities, uh, Josephus uh, wrote Antiquities, and he said if Jesus would have went, it would have been more than a four, about a 450 foot drop. So Satan said to him, if or since you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Yes, the wicked one knows scripture. Quoting Psalms chapter 91, verses 11 and 12. But since he's the source for false prophets, he uses it out of context. And as I stated before, he's not omniscient, but he watches. And being able to see things in the spirit realm, he was able to see the angels ministering to Jesus during the wilderness. So he uses that knowledge to try to gain an advantage. And Psalm 91 is an awesome song. It stresses God's protection. For instance, in, in verses 7 through 12, of Psalm 91, it says, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What a beautiful promise of security. But of course, once more, Jesus recognized his attempt to try to get him to manipulate God, which was expressly forbidden in the scriptures. So he rebukes Satan and says, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, but alluding to Exodus chapter 17, verses 2 through 7, when the Israelites put God to the test by demanding water in the wilderness of Meribah. Was it a sin that they were thirsty? Was it a sin that they desired water? No. Their sin was they doubted God and grumbled against God's man, Moses, when they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They were totally faithless and ungrateful. After witnessing God's great greatness and good goodness in delivering them. Yes, once again, Psalm 91 is a beautiful, beautiful promise of security. But it does not mean we should now do things that will cause God to have to move in a supernatural way to deliver us, thus putting God to the test by attempting to force his hand. Like, like when you eat a Big Mac for dinner every day. And by the way, you had fried chicken for lunch every day. And then quote Psalm 91 verse 16, where it says, you will give me long life. And you tell that to God and everybody who will hear. God's going to give you long life. That's one small way of putting God to the test. And I don't have enough time to go through all of the ways that some of us put God to the test. And the way we live. And quoting scripture. And you're living one way. And God says, here's the standard. We put God to the test. And once again, it's expressly forbidden in Scripture. So after striking out twice, the wicked one makes the greatest offer that he can make. It's what everybody wants. Verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship. Satan was offering Jesus a shortcut. 
but he offers him the kingdoms of the world and his splendor. But did you notice he left out all of the sin in the world? All of the death in the world. He left it out and it wasn't by an accident. One thing we have to remember, yes, you need to work to survive. Yes, it's good to have an occupation that you thrive in and that you do well. But when the offer of the world is placed before you and you have a decision to make, I can take this quote-unquote, I'll, I'll use a management position. I'll take this management position and you know going in that it's going to cost you more time. It's going to be more stress. I want you to think about this offer before you. I want you to say, wait a minute, will God be squeezed out. What happens, whether you've went through it or somebody you know have went through it, have gone through it, you see God being squeezed out, prayer time being squeezed out, church being squeezed out, and in time, troubles come. What happens? We panic. If that person is you, if it's somebody else, they panic. Don't know which way to turn. Families fall apart. Souls become distressed. What happened? So many times people don't think, we don't put the two. We don't put the two and two together. We don't say, okay, I have forsaken the life I once knew and living for the one who saved me. And I began living for myself. And it hurt me. It hurt me. But here's the good thing about God. You can always turn around. You can confess before God, I made this job an idol. I sinned against you. Lord God, help me turn it around. May I walk in humility and meekness and confess my sin to the people I neglected. Jesus, you have been too good to me for me to now put my all, my heart, my soul, my strength into this job. This job is eating me up and it's spitting me out. It's just chewing on me. And Lord, how do I get out? And God is so good. You come to God with sincerity and truth and he makes a way. He makes a way of escape to get out. So that, yes, you may have to live on less, but you will never be happy in Christ. This is what God calls us to. We have to recognize the offer that comes before us, right here. I'll give you everything. I'll give you what you want. And miss what our heart really needs. A relationship with Christ. That's why the gospel is so good. The gospel is not just for those who are lost. It's for those who have been found in Christ. Still, we need the gospel. We need to look to the cross. We need to continually see him and see Christ and see his love and see what he did, see his sacrifice. And then now we can begin showing love, living sacrificially for God so that everything you do, say Corinthians 5, 9, with an absolute presence, make it our aim to please God. We live for him. We serve him with our lives, with our all. And the joy comes out. As Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. To God. If you're doing it for people, people will disappoint you and you will stop doing it. But if you do it for God, he'll never disappoint you. And you keep going. It's not about the person. But you wrestle against not flesh and blood. Right? The powers and principalities in high places. We have to serve God without all. But Jesus wasn't going to take a shortcut. He wasn't going to uh, stop serving uh, his God, his Savior, the one who raised him, the one who brought him up. And when I say Savior, of course, I'm not speaking in the ultimate sense, but the one who saw his sacrifice upon the cross and raised him from the grave. Why? Because he lived the sinless life for us. That's how we know that he is the one 
He is like no other. He is the one. No one else is God for you. No one else is raised for you. Once again, Satan leaves the point of sin out. Even though Jesus appeared to take away sins. First John 3, 5. Satan was offering Jesus the benefits of being a king without the suffering of a servant for the sins of his people. Matthew 121, he should be called Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. No cross meant no death. Hell, the lake of fire, torment forever for everybody. No deal. No deal. No wonder Jesus was so upset with Peter when he made a similar suggestion, despite Peter's good intentions. In Matthew chapter 16, you remember what happened. After Jesus told his disciples that he must die, he must die, Peter said, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus recognized this as the same man-centered idea that was offered to him roughly three years ago that would have kept him from saving his people from sin and the punishment of their sins. So what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. What does Jesus say to Satan? Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The wicked one's offer was an offer of messianic authority and all its glory, but it removed the cross. In one moment, in just one compromise, Jesus could have assumed the role of Messiah, not. Not. No cross, no crown. He would have been a pseudo-Messiah, an imitation. Jesus knew, as we also know, that eventually compromise will cost us in the end because it's idolatry. Compromise is idolatry. Let me show you how this works. Compromising our Christian character is so enticing at times because it makes life easier at first. And it satisfies the flesh for a little while. But how many times have we regretted making a decision that we knew was wrong? We knew in our hearts we should have held out. We knew that we should not have said what we said, that it would bring hurt. We would tear down instead of building up. We are called to build up. Before we say anything to anybody, the thought from the Spirit says, is this going to lift them up or tear them down? That has to be our thought when our hearts are raging with anger because so-and-so did us wrong. Am I going to now change? Because change came my way. We knew we shouldn't have watched what we watched. We know as we were watching, the Spirit of God has come so you can turn it off in the midst of the sin. We all sin, but can we cut it off by the power of God? How does that happen? I am praying consistently, persistently. That should be our heart. That should be our attempt to live for God. Just knowing we can fall at any moment, walking humbly. We are sinners. We are not righteous. We have been declared righteous by God because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. We are sinners who need salvation, so we have to stay connected to God. We have to say, Lord, God, help me today. Before I get out of this bed, help me, Lord. Thank you for bringing me through the night, but I'm here for another purpose, which is your purpose for your glory. You have sustained me, help me love you by loving my neighbors. Not in word all, but indeed, help me, Lord, God. When we compromise our holiness, it's because we make a choice. We make that choice based on who we love and what we love. We make that choice because we love something else more than we love God, and that's idolatry. That's what it comes down to. What are you going to do at the fork in the road? Easy compromise, fill the flesh with pleasure for a season, or follow Christ. 
Follow Christ. Follow Christ. Don't compromise your morals. Don't fail the test by giving into temptation. And stop putting God to the test. And learn to wait on the Lord. For some of us, when we think about Jesus, we make him so small. We make him so small. But our trials, our temptations, is so huge, so large. It's, it's just overwhelming. I can't, I can't, I can't uh, uh, go another day. But if we switch it around, if we turn it around, we magnify the Lord, the one who was raised from the dead, the one who called your name before he said, let there be light, the one who thought about you. This is the one I'm going to die for. And I see his whole life. I know every sin, but I'm going to wear it at the cross. And the wrath of God is going to be on me. For this person, put your name in the black if you believe. For you. Magnify him. This way, when the temptations and the trials come, it's not likely going to stop. They're going to be here, but God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, is going to be here so that you always see him despite the troubles, despite the temptations, despite the fears and anxieties and depression. God is always here so I can keep my eyes on Christ and what he has done and I can, I can, I can wait for him because I see him. I see him. I know he has not abandoned me in my hard times. We must train ourselves to wait on the Lord. I'm not saying it's easy. It takes a discipline to say this right here is temporary. But my God is eternal. This right here is going to go by. But Christ will always be there. It takes a, a hardness against persecution, but a soft heart for people, people who are lost, people who are immature in Christ. That's what it takes. So many times you have wondered why God seems so reluctant to intervene in our trials. Sometimes even sounding like the Psalms in Psalm 69, specifically verse 3, when he says, I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. But if you would keep reading a little further in this very same psalm, as we grow, as we discipline ourselves, as we train ourselves in holiness and righteousness, learning to wait on God, hopefully, our speech will change like his speech. Speech changed. As he goes on to say, roughly 30 verses later, despite all my trouble, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people. We are his people. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. And we are of those who believe that he will come at the perfect moment. Not a second too soon and he is never late. Look at what happens after Jesus withstands the test. Verse 11. Then the devil left him. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Temptation defeated. The devil left Jesus. Luke adds, until an opportune time. That's important. Meaning the conflict has barely begun, but the pattern of obedience and trust has been established. This obedience and trust in the Father would be exemplified by Jesus all the way to the cross and his death. The love and care of the Father moved the Father to dispatch angels to his son's aid throughout this temptation. But this angelic help is not some passing blessing, but it's a sustained one. And according to Hebrews chapter 114, we have the same benefit. That all of the angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. 
at God's command, God's children have God's angels available to help them 24-7. But the greatest benefit that God's children have is God himself. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have worked to provide eternal help through an eternal union with Christ, through the blood of Christ, on the cross. For this reason, we can stand confident and stand still in our salvation. Not just when this life is over, but right now, right here, at this time, when the time of testing comes upon us and temptation arises within us, we need to stand still and we can stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Roughly 40 years and six weeks before the children of Israel would enter the promised land, those who remained, I should say, they found themselves standing, standing before the Red Sea and the Egyptian army raging fast towards them. And many began to act faithless. But in the midst of their greatest fear, God told Moses to tell them to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And as you know, the Lord parted the Red Sea and provided a way of escape. In the midst of our fears, in the midst of our faithlessness, even in our depression, when we don't want to get out of bed, in the midst of our temptations, when it's right there and we feel like we want to fail again, whether that's a hard heart, an, an unforgiving heart, whether that's sexual sin, whether that's uh, something that makes you intoxicated, whatever that sin is, whether it's saying things to hurt people, in the midst of all of that, God says, I have provided ways of escape. You don't have to be the same person. You don't have to say, well, I'm just like my father or my mother, or that's in our family line. That's how we are. God says, I pulled you out of that. Abraham is, a, Abraham is an illustration. I've taken you out of that. Your family is not to be your idol. That's not to be your God. That is not your go-to for the reason you do what you do. But follow my son. Be, be an imitator of his beloved children, as dear children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians 1 and 2. That's what we have to do, be imitators of God, not the people we are around, not products of our environment, but a product of the Holy Spirit being birthed in Christ. Through the blood of Jesus, God has removed our sin. He has adopted us. It's, we're not worthy of it. No, we're not worthy of it. Get over that. You're not worthy of it. I'm not worthy of it. But God chose you. He didn't say this person is a good person. He says, no, I'm going to receive a people. I'm going to redeem a people for myself. Get over it. Get over it. It's not because of the works. We say that as if we know it, but we live differently. And we judge others differently. And we're leaning with ourselves sometimes, but others we hold the crucible to. He said, no. I will save by grace. They will save by grace. I want God to show me grace. I'm going to show grace. Praise God. We are preserved by the hand of God and persevere by the Spirit of God. It is all of God. He is our everything. So that now, because of the Spirit of God, we know Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but really we live with that hope, that, that trust, that belief that we can do all things, including be transformed. Defeat temptation. This is the purpose. This is why God gave you the fruit of the Spirit. Not just to show love when it's a loving 
situation or environment. It's show love, joy, and peace, but it's not a loving environment. That's why we have that. The world will be nice to people who are nice to that. But we are called to be like Christ. That's what we're called to do. We are called to stand as more than conquerors in Christ. I want you to believe today temptation has been defeated in Christ. So we walk trying to match that. Right? Not to earn salvation, but because we are his beloved children. Let's pray. Father, I am so glad that I only was Jesus. 100% man. 100% God. Truly God. Truly man. Because we see that although this union is inseparable, he hungered and he thirsted. Temptation came his way. And because he's, he was truly God and would not fail the temptation, does not mean that him being truly man couldn't feel the pull, couldn't feel the temptation, but delivered was delivered by faith in you, knowing that you would never leave him nor forsake him. He was the perfect man, living the perfect life for us, Lord God. And I thank you that our life is in him, the one who died for us, the perfect sacrifice. Well, for all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, they look to him. The one without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle. That he would be raised from the dead and accepted by the Father. That all who believe in him, all who trust in him, shall be saved and raised and shall not, shall not taste the second death. We have no reason to fear. I do pray for my brothers and sisters and myself, Lord, that you would keep that hope in us consistently. That we will not blow and be tossed by the wind that comes, the winds of doubt. The things that are happening in this life, Lord God, they are fleeting, they are passing by, and you have kept us and you will keep us by your power. And at the appropriate time, at the appointed time, you will call us home. And we can do nothing about that. So please, Lord, I pray for everybody here that you would take away fear. That you would take away any, 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 any uh, trepidations of what's going to happen tomorrow. But that they would plant their feet on the rock of Christ. Hmm. Praise you, Lord God. We can trust in you. You are our hope. You are our glory. You are our joy. Let us rest in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.